0: everyone. In our house, when it comes time for the 15th of the month and we pay all of our bills, there's normally this conversation that happens between Dory and myself. Something to the effect of, do we really need that? Do we really need to pay that bill? Sometimes that happens for trivial things like the milk we might get delivered or how many Poland spring bottles of water we have. And sometimes I can be so frugal I even ask that about heating and cooling during the respective seasons. But there's one bill that has come for the last three years that I don't fight her on at all. We just sign it and smile, and write the check every year. And that's the bill for summer camp. And the reason why I write that check for summer camp so happily is not because my kid loves it. And my kid loves summer camp. That's just a byproduct. The reason I write that check is because I have four weeks in the house without the kids. Now, you're giggling, but I'm serious. And this year, my little boy is old enough to go for two weeks. Last year, he went to his grandparents for two weeks, and this year, he's going to camp for two weeks, which meant that we had our house to ourselves for two weeks. That was absurd. We didn't know what to do with all of this freedom. We didn't know what to do when you could actually lie in bed past 6.35 without a little person touching your toes or asking if they can play the Xbox or asking what's for breakfast on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and the system goes on. And what it also gave us was a time to remember how it is we met and how it is we fell in love and what our relationship was built on. Because so much of our life is based on the day-to-day operations of our two respective jobs, on running our household, and on raising our kids, that often we just forget about each other. Not intentionally, not maliciously, it just happens. It happens because all of these other things that are oh so critical, they rise to the surface and we lose focus on each other because we can't neglect the kids for a minute, and we can't neglect the house for a minute, and we can't neglect our work for a minute, so we end up relying on each other. A few weeks ago, maybe it was actually a few months ago, we took the kids to Orlando, and my daughter is one of these ride buffs. She likes to go on any scary ride there is, And I drew the short short straw and went with her on all of these rides because she couldn't go by herself. And In the course of four days, we rode 26 different roller coasters. So being the curious fellow that I am, I researched roller coasters and how roller coasters work. And the basic premise of a roller coaster is as follows. A roller coaster takes you with some kind of propulsion or drag, pulling up a very significant steep incline, And then inertia takes over. What does that mean? That means the weight of the roller coaster keeps you safe so that you don't fall out. But basically, when you drop and you spin and you turn, it's happening just on the weight of going upward and falling downward, not necessarily on propulsion that happens throughout the ride. And a couple of times throughout the ride, the roller coaster actually comes to a, somewhat of a stop and there's another jolt, a surge of electricity that gives the roller coaster more propulsion to go on its next loops or its next phase. But that's what gets it up those other hills. But otherwise, it's purely inertia. And to me, that reminded me the model for marriage. And I want to talk to you about a model for marriage, too. That has more history than I do. The model for marriage actually comes from the Bible. And I want you to think of this paradigm that I spent time thinking about over the last few weeks. The Torah starts off with the first creation of a human being immediately followed by another creation of an opposite sex and their connection to each other. And the entire book of Genesis is a relational book. It is how one person relates to the other. It's how Adam and Eve create children without much of love and understanding. And then we skip forward to Abraham and Sarah and the issues they deal with in their marriage and being barren, Hagar's role coming in the middle of their love relationship. We deal with Isaac and Rebecca and love at first sight. We also deal with the dynamism of having two kids who are wildly different. Then we deal with Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And then we deal with Joseph as well. And when the book of Genesis comes to a close, we immediately begin the narrative of Moses. And what we notice happening is we focus from the individual relationship with God to the communal relationship with God. And there's one thing that is incredibly absent throughout all the book of Exodus, all the book of Leviticus, all of the book of Numbers, and all the book of Deuteronomy. And the thing that's missing is love. There are no relationships in the story of Exodus. There are no relationships in the story of Leviticus throughout the books. None in Numbers or Deuteronomy either. In a couple of weeks, we're going to read the terrible story of Aaron's two sons, Nadav and Avihu, who brought a sacrifice to God that was a strange fire. And God didn't like it, and he zapped them, killed them instantly for bringing the strange fire to the sacrifice to the altar. And we hear how Aaron is totally silent from the pain of losing his children. We hear Moses trying to rehabilitate him and offer him comfort. But Aaron's wife, not even mentioned. Moses was married, but we don't know anything about their relationship and the challenges and trials and tribulations that they shared. And what this tells us is that perhaps this is the paradigm that we're following also. Meaning we don't talk about love and relationship again in all of the Bible until we get to the prophets, which is at a later time frame. And I've got some sad news for all of you. It's not as romantic as you think. The prophets actually contain many more relationships that were forbidden relationships than permitted relationships. Look at the hero, King David. First, he has a relationship with someone named Abigail who's happily married to a man named Naval Naval translates to the word ignoramus. He says to Abigail, are you married? She says, yeah. What's your husband's name? He says, Naval, which means ignoramus. She goes, what do you think of your husband? And she says, like his name he is. And then they get together. And then David falls in love with Bathsheba and takes Uriah, Bathsheba's legal husband, and puts him off to the front lines. And in the front lines, there he dies in battle. Why? So that Bathsheba can be his. Then we have the case of Manoach, who is a man, or the first man we're taught of in all of the Bible, who can't bear children. He's infertile. And we find out that a special angel came and visited his wife, and then she became impregnated. And most commentators believe that this was another person who committed a form of adultery, and was the father of that child, and that child became Samson. And throughout the prophets, we see relationships that are blossoming, but not relationships that are celebrated. They're forbidden relationships. And this is a paradigm that I've been thinking about because of a conversation I was part of two weeks ago. I had the blessing of sitting down with 19 other people who they all were called leaders in the Jewish world. And we were tasked for 24 hours, only breaking for a half an hour to eat and eight hours to sleep we were tasked with thinking critically on the issue of love and marriage in Judaism. And there were people of all different backgrounds and stripes in this conversation. Congregational rabbis, marital therapists, journalists. And it was facilitated by Daniel Jones. Now, for those of you who don't know, Daniel Jones is the editor of the Modern Love section of the New York Times. Now, a lot of people love reading that every week. It just inspires them. They get infused. They get hope and they love reading that section. Other people tell me it's the most depressing part of the entire paper for them, because it reminds them of how far they are from these motions of ideal. Daniel was talking to us about some empirical evidence he had found in his research that he just wrote for his book, and what he has explained is is that marriage starts off the first three years with incredible focus, intense, strong charge, both a connection romantically, lustfully, intellectually, and then what he explained empirically in his data was that either at the birth of your first child or at three years, whichever comes first, those feelings start to drop precipitously. And marriage becomes what I call a form of inertia. It reminds us a lot of that roller coaster that roller coaster that gets us moving. And then we wait for the inertia to take us to the next place and the supercharges that fall in to bring us up and down at other parts of the journey. But what was most fascinating to me in this conversation with Daniel and the others around the table is that the paradigm that we have in Judaism might be a paradigm for how relationships look but shouldn't be, meaning we focus intensely on relationships in the book of Genesis and ignore it for the following four books and don't pay attention to it. And then when our heart reawakens again, it's reawakening in relationships that shouldn't be. We're not refocusing on our own personal romances between those who we've committed to, but in other directions. Maybe this paradigm is reminding us of some of our reflex that we have as well. Not something we sanctify, not something that we stand behind, but something that happens in our world. But what Daniel pointed out, that's worth all of us looking at, is that the model that we thought that existed in relationships is not the paradigm anymore. And there are a few examples of that. And the first example I'll draw to your attention is from an article in the very paper that Daniel works for called the New York Times. It's from July of 2013, just this past summer. And it's an article that was 13 pages long and started off with the story of a student at the University of Pennsylvania And the title is called The Hookup Nation. And it's all about a phenomenon that's happening in all types of universities, not just Penn, where boys and girls are not in committed relationships anymore. They just hook up romantically, one person with the next. They call up and get together, and that's their thing. And they don't date anymore. They don't go out to dinner. As a matter of fact, the very girl who was interviewed said she couldn't even stand to have coffee with the person she was connecting with intimately, but that she regularly called him and he her for their romantic interludes, that they couldn't stand to be with each other, and that this was a new standard. When I, well, I don't think I'm that old, when I was in high school, we all marveled at Abby and Joel. Abby and Joel were the couple that got together freshman year, and they stayed together all of high school. And every young boy and every young girl wanted to be like them. Committed in a relationship, monogamous with each other, focused in their commitment to each other, and they learned how to be in relationship. Abby and Joel went down different paths and they married, got together with different people. But that was the paradigm in my generation, which isn't so different from this next generation, of what relationship looked like. But Daniel used this example to tell us that relationships have changed dramatically in the Torah. And in the world that we live today, they have changed dramatically too. They're not the same. And one example is that example from the New York Times. The other example is that we see a growing phenomenon of people who can't stand to be with another person, but are dying to have children. So they're becoming single parents on their own. Now when we understand The notion of single parenthood, normally that means that there is a relationship that's divorced or sometimes a deadbeat mother or father who aren't part of their child's upbringing and being reared. But this is a different phenomenon. These are people who are choosing to adopt or bring a child into the world without a second parent from the get-go, knowingly. And this is a new phenomenon. Another phenomenon we have are a whole group of people who have no aspiration, especially in the Jewish world, to ever have children or to ever be in relationship. And what we talked about in great detail was that if we are going to be a dynamic religion, a religion that continues to contort to the different needs and desires and realities that are part of the Jewish world, then we better become accustomed to what these things are about, to what's really going on in our community, and how we start to address it and change it. What Daniel explained was that it's true. The divorce rate has gone down just a little bit in the United States over the last decade. But what we attribute that to is actually two factors that might make sense. One, people are getting married later and a little bit more secure in the choices that they make in partner. And secondly, it has become the standard that people live together before they're married. I marry on the average 25 to 30 people a year. And when I meet with each of those couples, which I do a minimum of four times, I do just a statistical data intake on them. Where do they meet? Where are they from? Where do they go to school? What's their address? How do I get a hold of them? In the seven years I've been a rabbi here, and you do the math on 25 to 30 weddings a year, one couple had separate addresses. One. So what Daniel says is one of the reasons why the divorce rate has gone down is because people are learning to live with each other or not to live with each other before they commit to marriage. And furthermore, he says, that many people are just living together without the commitment of marriage because they see no benefit whatsoever in putting a ring on each other's finger. He told me one other statistic that was absolutely fascinating to me. Perhaps it doesn't have so much to do with the model and paradigm of the Torah, but worth us thinking about. He said that of the 50% of marriages that don't work, most of them don't work in the first 10 years. And those that don't work in the first five years, 85% of them, they attribute to a result of not communicating about finances. That financial incongruencies, financial communication issues, are the number one leader in the first five marriages, first five years of marriage, the marriages that fail. So why am I sharing all of this with you? What's the purpose of the rabbi on Parshat tzav talking about sacrifice, talking to you about paradigms for marriage from the Torah and how the Torah fails us in giving us a model of a roller coaster that gives us a surge on takeoff and inertia takes us through the rest? What's the purpose of talking about it with you? And the purpose to me is really quite clear. The purpose is, as a synagogue, we have to do more than just think about issues. We have to be active. We have to be a part of addressing these issues. And what I've grown to see in the seven years I've been your rabbi is that this synagogue really embraces traditional married couples. We do. But as a result, where we have changed is that many of your children and some of your grandchildren don't fit that paradigm anymore. And that if we want to be a synagogue for tomorrow, if we want to be a synagogue that tells all Jews of different backgrounds and stripes, that we are a place for them, then we need to be part of thinking critically of these different models and paradigms, even if they seem foreign to us, even if they don't fit perfectly to us. There are people in this shul that keep kosher. There are people in this shul that don't. There are people in this shul that drive on Shabbat and people in the synagogue that walk. There are people in this synagogue that go shopping on Saturday afternoon and those that make it as a family day. But all of those people are welcome all of them. And this needs to be a synagogue that welcomes people of all backgrounds and all stripes. So what I present to all of you are a twofold initiative that I hope that we undertake within the next, next six to 12 months in our congregation. One is we want to overhaul our process for a premarital counseling for couples that come in to meet us. Currently, We spend a whole lot of time with these young couples, and some of them not so young, talking about the choreography of the wedding day. We talk about so many things to prepare for walking down the aisle and putting the ring on the finger and circling the bride and circling the groom, and we learn together and we learn with each other. But we don't do nearly enough preparation for the husband and the wife-to-be, or the couple-to-be of whatever gender they might be from, and preparing them for what married life looks like, and not just the wedding day. And we have a responsibility to do that. For the first years of my rabbinate, I felt ill-equipped. Who am I? A young pisher. I'm going to go tell people how they should be married. Well, i got news for you. I'm just as ill-equipped today. I struggle with things in my marriage no more and no less than all of you. But we have a responsibility. And that's why I'm presenting an idea that will include seven classes with all of our future couples that get married in our temple, including meeting with a financial advisor, including meeting with a marital therapist to help these couples work on communication issues issues and conflict resolution, as well as the details that are necessary for the choreography and preparation for the wedding day and creating a Jewish life together. Because if we wanna see this relationship continue to grow and we wanna give them all the tools that'll be necessary so that the moments when inertia runs out they have their own fuel source to recharge it again, we can't sit idly by. And that will include follow-up meetings after the wedding six to 12 months later. The second initiative that I think we want to do at our synagogue is one based on inclusivity. What I learned in those 24 hours with Daniel and my colleagues from across the globe is that the paradigm that might exist at Temple Emmanuel And the paradigm that I might have grown up and been comfortable in is not the same paradigm for Jews all over the world. And all you have to do is go 10 miles away across the bridge and you'll see a radically different paradigm for relationship. And we need to be understanding, educated, and tolerant for what that looks like. And we can't only think that we are cutting edge because we might embrace someone of the same sex who comes to our congregation. We have to embrace a single parent We have to embrace those who join our community without aspiration of having children. And we have to embrace those that are single and have no aspiration to find their partner or mate. These are all Jews in our community. They are different than we might be, but they are welcome just the same. And if we have one portal for every Jew of every background, of every stripe, and those who aren't even Jewish, perhaps in a blended faith family, then we have a responsibility as Jews to show the best of what we do in the most embracing and tolerant fashion because that is core to our existence. Now, some of these ideas, they might not sit well with you. They might be foreign to you. Some of them are even foreign to me. They really are. And it's hard, as the captain of the ship, so to speak, to encourage us to follow a path that I don't wholeheartedly understand or even endorse at times. But I think that we have a responsibility. And the responsibility is to do better. We have to do better. We have to do more than we're currently doing in our own relationships when our inertia runs out so that we find the sources to give us that extra charge to continue on the roller coaster of marriage. And it is a roller coaster. There are highs and there are lows. And it's scary, exciting, and exhilarating all at the same time. But there are too many that hit the rut and can't find the fuel charge to get them up that next hill again. So we have to do more for that next generation so it doesn't happen. And we have to do more for these couples instead of preparing them to walk down this beautiful aisle and what will be a memorable evening for them. To prepare them for more than that night, we have to prepare them for every single day afterwards. And we have more to do as a community to understand people who aren't wired the same way we are. For some, it might not fit. It might feel foreign. But that's the very nature of community, where we're part of something bigger than we are that can accept those that aren't exactly like us for a greater cause. When I read the Torah today, and I think tonight of the story of Ahashverosh and Vashti, The king who insists that his queen do inappropriate things and she stomps her foot down and says no. And what does he do? He has her killed and looks for a new queen. I think about a relationship that doesn't understand each other. That can't communicate with each other. That has no basis of love. I think about a relationship that needed help. And while it's true in the end, all of the factors turned out to help the Jewish people. Perhaps we have a greater responsibility at times to help those in relationship so that they can have the tools to grow from where they are. And that when we look at these barren parts of the Torah that don't mention love and don't mention connectivity, that we can in ourselves find our own fuel charge to reignite, to reestablish, and rekindle those connections that we had. If we don't do that as a synagogue, and we only cater to those that are comfortable, to those that fit into our neat little box, then we succeeded at some things and failed at many others. And we can't afford to fail. Let us commit to be resolved in opening our minds and our hearts and creating new paradigms with new understanding and tolerance that allows us to grow, and in doing so, May we strengthen the Jewish people. May we strengthen humanity. And may we do something that's pleasing in God's eyes, just like the sacrifices of old. Shabbat shalom.